0: Our first reading is from Mark, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Again he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there, while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen! A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables. In order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand the parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root. And endure only for a while then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word immediately they fall away and others are those sown among the thorns these are the ones who hear the word but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. Amen. The second reading continues with Mark 4. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket, or under the bed, and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given you. For to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. He also said, the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, in the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. Amen.
1: Thank you, Hazel. Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're going to be spending time in Mark's Gospel between now and Easter. We were in the Hebrew Bible looking at uh, God's revelation through Israel in the autumn, and now we're picking up the Jesus story, and we're going to be allowing Mark's Gospel to guide us through our encounter and our engagement with Jesus as we move towards uh, the the story of Easter coming up uh, towards the end of March. And one of the slightly odd things about Mark's Gospel is that quite a few times in the course of the gospel, Jesus is described as having been a teacher. But when you read through Mark's gospel, you find Jesus actually doesn't do an awful lot of teaching. Uh, Scholars suggest this is one of the main uh, motivations for why Matthew and Luke felt that they needed to kind of expand Mark's gospel in order to add in the uh, traditions of him teaching that Mark hadn't put in. But Mark isn't entirely devoid of Jesus' teaching. And in today's readings, we meet some of his most famous parables, sower, and lamp, and scattered seed, and mustard seed. But we also get this rather strange saying, which is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah, uh, which is where Jesus says that he uses parables, not in order to explain the kingdom of heaven, but to conceal and confuse it. And this is very interesting because it seems Jesus didn't see his use of parables as the answer to the question of how to best communicate his message. Jesus didn't see parables as the solution to the problem of a world which didn't want to hear his message. And contrary to what some of us were told in Sunday school, he didn't use parables as pithy soundbites, cunningly disguised to get his point across in 30 seconds or less. Rather, for Jesus, and we might suspect the readers of Mark's Gospel some 30 or 40 years after the time of Jesus, for them, the parables encapsulate the problem of communicating the good news about Jesus. In a world which can often seem, I don't know, willfully ignorant or even actively hostile to the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. The reality, which I'm sure many of us can relate to, is that whilst those who are already in a faith relationship with God will find the faith world created by the parables to be compelling. Those who don't read these stories through the lens of faith remain blind and deaf to their challenge. There's a strange paradox here, which is that the kingdom of heaven is revealed precisely where it is also most hidden. I think the New Testament scholar Richard Borkham uh, it's a shame Judith's not here this morning. She, she's not very well. I, I, she's probably listening online and has just jumped up and down when I mentioned Richard Borkham, because I know they're old trends. Um, he has commented that the spirit who inspired scripture also inspires its believing readers to accept it as God's message and to understand it. And I think this is, this is a really important point to make about the way in which we engage with the Bible. The Bible is not in itself inherently the Word of God. It's perfectly possible to read the Bible and not hear God speaking through it. I could point you to many people who have read the Bible as a work of literature or a work of historiography or a work of social history and they don't hear God speaking through it. Those of us who are part of the community of faith, who have active in our lives and our minds and our hearts, the spirit of God which inspired those who wrote the Bible, we hear it as God's word. You know that thing at the end of a Bible reading, sometimes people say this is the word of the Lord and people go thanks be to God? Down at King's College London they have a slightly different formula. They go thanks be to God for God's word revealed in scripture. I think that kind of captures it a bit better because you need the spirit in you in order to hear God speaking to you. It's a bit of a catch-22. Those who don't have the spirit don't hear. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting at in this quote from Isaiah. Parables are not teaching that explains the kingdom, they are rather stories that in some way actually embody the kingdom, embody its values, its principles, everything it stands for, and they then invite us to participate in that world not just to understand it. Anyway, let me tell you a story or possibly it might be a parable. Some school children went on a field trip from the city to the country And their teacher was showing them the natural environment. They were city kids. And the teacher spotted four plants one, a tiny new plant, two, a shrub about a year old, three, quite a large bush, and four, a tree. Anyway, the teacher invited one of the larger boys to try and uproot them, and he succeeded easily with the first one. The second took a bit more effort. He couldn't really uproot the bush at all, and the tree couldn't even be moved. And the lesson the teacher was trying to put across is that the strength of the tree came not really from what was going on above ground at all. Its increased size, in the case of the second one, had actually given the child a bit more to hold on to. But rather the strength came from what was going on below the ground, from the growth of the root system. That was what protected the tree from being uprooted. The smaller plants were vulnerable to being uprooted, but given enough time, they too might have grown to be enough of a size with sufficient roots to withstand the child's attempts to uproot them. And this morning, we're going to be thinking about growth and seeing what truths we can hear from Jesus' stories, his parables, of seeds growing into plants. The broader context here for us at Bloomsbury If you can cast your minds back to 2019 before the pandemic and before the changes that happened to us we worked if you remember then on three sets of words that encapsulate who we are as a church we called them our values statement our vision statement and our mission statement and we used an analogy we said the values statement the values that have come down to us through the centuries that this church has existed they are our roots They go deep. They draw the energy and the nutrition that keep us going as a church. The mission statement. Though that was the leaves, that's what shape Bloomsbury takes in this day and age. And what joins the roots, what joins our values to our mission was the trunk. That's our vision statement. That's the bit that takes all those values and channels it into into action in the modern world. Can anybody remember our vision statements? Anybody got that? Can anybody remember what we came up with? It begins with provoking faith, he says, giving a clue. In the heart of London. A short trunk-like statement of solidity and strength. We are a congregation that seeks to provoke faith In the heart of London we want to draw faith out of people and places who may not yet have seen it and experienced it but also the faith that we embody as a community is a little bit provocative we push boundaries we do things that sometimes other Christians find a bit difficult to live with but we do that because that's who we are and that comes from our values of justice and inclusion and an absolute commitment to God's love for all people expressed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the leaves are what that looks like in our world. So we are a church deeply rooted in our values, held strong by an articulation of our vision and bearing active fruit in relation to our mission. I would think that probably most people who come to church would be in agreement that church growth is, in principle, at least a good thing. I mean, Frank, you and I have had conversations for about 12 years since I've been here, and your persistent challenge, and I am always grateful to you for it, is what are you going to do to get more people coming on a Sunday, Simon? And you're right, and I'm going to push it back on everybody else and say what are we going to do to get more people coming on a Sunday? Because You know, you look around at a building like this, it was built for 600 people or more, and we've got, it's great, isn't it? What a lovely congregation we have this morning. But there are some gaps. There's a lot of gaps if you look up there. Church growth is not a bad thing. I think it would be good to get more people. I don't believe that we're the sum total of those people in London who would value who we are as a church and what we do. I think there is church growth to be, to be moved into and embraced here. What's not so clear-cut, I'm afraid, and I don't have your magic solution here, is how you go about growing a church. It's not straightforward. And I want to just tease this out a moment. Mostly, I suspect, we tend to think of church growth in terms of numerical growth, you know, the bums-on-seats metric. But although this might be the type of growth we can most easily understand, something we can see and measure, I think we need to think about growth slightly broader than this. It's not just about numbers. It's also about healthy growth, which is growth of the individual. My growth in my faith, my relationship with Jesus. Your growth in faith? Your relationship with Jesus? How do you encounter God? How are you growing in your faith? These are related questions to the bums on seat question, but they're not quite the same. But I do think unless we have healthy growth in ourselves, unless our own faith as a community that is already here and our own faith growth as individuals, unless those are deepening and broadening in healthy ways, Growing strong numerically could be very shallow. Simply growing numerically without a corresponding quality of growth below the surface is a recipe for a boom-and-bust revivalist approach to church growth. Our roots need to go deep if we are to survive and be strong when the winds of the world come upon us. Some of you know I spent a number of years uh, teaching at Cardiff University, and as part of that I was very engaged with the Welsh Baptists, and I know we've got a number of Welsh Baptists as part of this congregation. And they were forever harking back to the days of the Welsh Revival. Do you know within 10 years of the Welsh Revival there were less people attending Welsh Baptist churches than there were before the Welsh Revival. There was this huge explosion of numerical growth there was a lot of money that came, because if you've got a lot of people, a lot of people give a bit of money, you've got a lot of money. So you build a bigger building, and suddenly a building that felt brilliant when there were 100 people in a 70-seater building, you go, well, this is amazing, let's build one that seats a 1,000. So you build a 1,000-seater auditorium, and suddenly 100 people are rattling around inside it, and they think, gosh, the place is empty, this is terrible, and the thing imploded. And There is this strong thesis that actually the, the church building growth of the Welsh revival really didn't help. But if you have massive boom numerically, without a corresponding depth of spiritual growth, you are setting yourself up for something of a fall. For a long time now, the Western world has has lived in a world predominantly thought of in terms of mechanical and scientific um, terminology. This is influenced by the Enlightenment, influenced by the Industrial Revolution. And the church in our country has been greatly affected by these kinds of mechanistic and scientific thinking, applying rational reasoning to cause and effect uh, issues such as church growth. As an example of this mechanistic way of thinking, we might look at the way in which certainly the last 30 or 40 years, have tried different approaches to evangelism, both in Baptist land, but also Church of England land, Pentecostal land. There's been various approaches to church growth. And what tends to happen is you hear about a church somewhere that's been having a lot of success uh, with a particular method of evangelism or church growth that they've embodied and discovered and developed. And you then hear that one or two other churches have tried it and they found it's worked quite well to them. So you then conclude that this must therefore work in every church and that every church should put it into practice and you pour all your energy and efforts into it and of course what you find is that what works quite well in, I don't know, middle class suburbia may not work quite so well in working class East End or central London or you know rural Norfolk and what we have had to discover is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to church growth. And then you end up with people worrying that, well, we tried something new and it hasn't worked as well as we'd hoped it would, so everybody gets very disillusioned and convinced themselves that they must be at fault. It doesn't work that way. Church growth is not a franchise. It's not a factory. You can't just make people. And this is where, I think, Jesus helps us here with his, uh, his parables of natural church development. You cannot make a, a successful... No, successful is the wrong word. You cannot You can make a successful church. There are formulas. You will not grow a healthy church if you just... Sing the right songs, run the right courses, do this, do that, do the other, and expect it to work. Because churches are not made, people are not made Christians. They grow in God by faith. Consider a different analogy. When a child is conceived, the beginning is a single cell which begins to divide and one cell becomes two, then four, then eight. And at this stage, the end result could be almost anything because this process of cellular division takes place for every living thing. But as the embryo develops, and the different cells take on different functions, it becomes clear that a new human being is in development. And the result is the extremely complex individual organism that is you, that is me. And no two of us are the same. Even identical twins that come from the same initial cell will develop differently from the point of conception. They're not the same. The result of the process of natural division is growth. Natural growth, growth that will last and will be strong and will work. It happens in the womb initially and then after the birth it continues through childhood into maturity. And this is natural growth, this is not made, not manufactured and churches are grown. And they are grown by God, they are not grown by humans. The church is not the end result of a human production line where we bolt the right bits together to make a church, we are not a franchise with a logo and brand loyalty, rather we are a community of faith that is grown by God, as the parable of nature tells us, and each church is grown differently. Like the infinite uniqueness of snowflakes, so with people and plants and churches. And in our modern Western culture, we're so divorced, aren't we, from the world of agriculture. And for those of us who live in cities, well, my food comes from the supermarket. Not in my world, the field or the cow. I mean, I may know they're there in the background, but that's not my experience. And the way we think is so informed by industrial and scientific thinking that our thought processes are not tuned to think about natural processes of growth. And yet, this is how Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus spoke and taught about growth, he used simple, natural terms. So we have the story of the parable of the seeds. In this story, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a farmer scattering seed on the ground. Once the seed has been sown, what happens next? The growth takes place pretty much all by itself until the harvest has arrived. And of course the farmer has done all that he can in the preparation of the soil and the careful sowing of the seed, but the growth has to come from God. The farmer cannot bring about growth, all the farmer can do is remove obstacles. It is a partnership, you see, between farmer and soil, where the harvest is the result of the growth that God gives. So I want to draw out four principles, briefly, of church growth that I think are ours to hear at the start of a new year. And a new year in which I hope we will see growth, not just numerically, but in terms of depth and spirituality and our relationship with Jesus. What is this year going to be for us? Well, The first principle from the natural world that I want to draw on here is that we are dependent on one another. The Church of Jesus Christ is a complex organism with so many parts interrelating with each other. Where Jesus uses the parable of a plant, Paul uses the comparable analogy of the human body noting it's made from different parts, with each part having its own essential role to play for the healthy functioning of the whole. And so with us, each of us is dependent on the others. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us is honored, we are all honored. We have all lived with our friend who has been through his immigration battle over the last few years. When that is resolved, we all rejoice. That is the way it is and the way it should be. This is why we need one another. This is why it is important to come and be in community and communion with one another. You know, there are, you often get that thing trotted out from, I think it's Hebrews, isn't it? Do not neg- neglect meeting together as some have done. It's not about guilting people into church attendance, but we do need one another. And if we do not turn up and be in relationship with one another as we are able, then that relationship suffers positive outcome of this dependency we have on one another is that the sum of our parts is greater than any individual part on their own. We need one another and it is only together that we will make up the living organism that is the Church of Jesus Christ. So we must invest In forming meaningful relationships with each other, in getting to know each other, in forging friendships across the boundaries that might divide us. So, if you're looking around today and you're over coffee and you see somebody and you think, I don't really know you terribly well, this is your invitation to find a way to say, Hey, I'd love to get to know you a bit better. Can we do that? Let's build depth and strength of relationship together because we are together the Church of Christ. My second point, so the first point is we're dependent on one another as the cells in an animal and the parts of a plant are dependent on one another. Second point, multiplication is a normal natural process. If we're thinking naturally about our church, we must recognize that unlimited increase in size is not going to be normal. Every form of organic life has an ideal size and at some point it reaches its ideal natural limit. No plant or animal will increase in size indefinitely. In the plant world, some trees live for centuries, others last a few days. Some grow huge and others reach their perfect size when they're really quite small. But always, eventually, the cycle reaches its end. Everything, everything eventually dies. However, plants do so much more than just live and die. They produce many more of themselves along the way. A plant's mission is not to permanently increase in size, it is to create new plants before it dies. And sometimes the lifespan will be long and sometimes it will be short, but the cycle is always the same. And it's the same, of course, in the animal world. And in humans, we grow healthily up until we reach a height limit in our teenage years. And then some of us, less healthy growth continues. And it's just outwards rather than upwards. But the injunction from God to Adam and Eve is not to grow until they're 30 foot tall. It's to be fruitful and multiply in accordance with the natural way of things. And Jesus applies this same approach to his kingdom. Multiplication is built into its natural life. Continued, unchecked numerical growth for a single congregation should not be expected. Unrestrained cell division is not growth, it's cancer. Which leads me to observe that death as a normal part of life is to be expected. Some aspects of The ministry of a church will come to their end. Things that we did that were great, they die. And that's okay. Their completion should be celebrated. I sometimes think we should hold funerals for certain aspects of church ministry. Things that we loved, that we invested time and energy into, they die. And we celebrate them. And we go, wasn't that wonderful? But it is no more. Sometimes the church itself will die, and this too is to be expected. Do you know, hardly any of the initial churches of the Christian faith that are mentioned in the Bible still survive. They're gone. I toured around the seven churches of the Book of Revelation with Liz a few years ago. Every single one is a ruin. Thankfully, Bloomsbury, 176 years this year, still going. Long may it continue. But one day this place too will die, and that will be okay too. I just pray, God, it's not on my watch. (laughs) There is a life cycle. And so I would observe that the ultimate fruit of an apple tree is not an apple. It's the new tree that grows from the seeds of the apple. The apple is an important stage of the process. The fruit we bear matters but that fruit has to take life itself beyond us in the world as the kingdom of God continues to grow, even when particular previous expressions of that growth reach their own natural conclusions. And I want to say also the true fruit of a leader is not followers, it's more leaders. The true fruit of a disciple is not a convert, it's another disciple. We are in the process of multiplication, not setting up power structures, not setting up institutions. They're merely the things that help us do what we're really there to do. So, first point, we're dependent on each other. Second point, multiplication is normal. Third point, all energy should be transformed There are two distinctive ways to deal with the forces of nature. The first is to be like a boxer who uses all of his strength to combat his foe, strength against strength, with the strongest eventually winning. The alternative is like a judo fighter, where someone who is physically weaker can bring down the person who is stronger by using the stronger person's strength against them. And the difference between these two is that instead of seeking to destroy the natural forces at work in our church by using a counterforce we can learn to harness what is already there and turn it into something different we cannot force bloomsbury to be something that it is not if we keep trying to force it to be something it's not well we'll just get it pushing back because we're pushing against what god has made what we can do, however, is work with the gifts that God has given us to use those gifts for growth in ourselves, in our community, in God, through Christ. I'm very fond of quoting Sam Wells, our friend, the rector down the road at uh, down at the road at St Martin in the Fields. He says, "God has already given you." Everything you need to be the congregation that you are called to be. Just maybe you're not spotting it yet. The gifts of God are here. Every single one of you who has come here today is a gift of God for this place in this moment. And for some of you, this might be your only visit. For others, it might be your 500th visit. For others, it will be the first visit of many. We are here because God has given us one another. And we cannot force each other to be what we are not. What we can do is we can learn what we are and then work with who God has called us and created us to be. Like the crew of a yacht using the force of the wind not to see it overturn them, but to take it where they want to go. Natural wind can be very destructive out at sea but it can also be the great resource that helps people on their way. Too often church life, and I'm not talking particularly here just about Bloomsbury, but certainly in the West, church life has been governed by a boxer mentality. A problem arises and we use force and energy and money to try and overcome it, and we expend great resources in the process, and I think there has to be a better way. And I think natural thinking helps us discover that every form of energy can be productive. It may take some inventive ways of thinking and much prayer, but God causes all things to work together for good. And I have a deep conviction that God is at work even through the worst of times to bring good fruit into being in the world. God never gives up on us and God is always loving us back to life. So we must always remind ourselves of the need to use the energy of the environment around us, not fighting against it. So as we think about what we're going to do with our basement, it's been fallow for three years and now it's time to see it bear fruit. We're going to be talking a little bit about that this afternoon, the process we're on as we discern how we're going to use the resources of this building to serve the kingdom of God. So come to the church meeting and be part of that conversation. If we are wise, we will learn to use the strengths and the energies around us for the good that God has given them to us for. So my fourth point, God has made us to be fruitful. In the natural world, nothing is ever an end in itself. Everything always has a function. God has created all living things to bear fruit. And where there is no fruit, something is wrong. Fruit is essential. Fruit is visible. The reason an apple tastes so nice is so that it will attract animals who will take the seeds and spread them further from the tree that created the apple. And all natural life is characterized by the ability to bear fruit. The difficulty in churches is that what we think of as fruit gets too easily confused with aspects of our our mission in the world. Sure, projects are nice. We all like a good project. But if the project does not lead to the growth of the kingdom of God in the world, something is wrong, and that project is not what it should be. And so we need to learn to judge who we are as a congregation by the fruit that we bear. And I want to make a leap here into Paul's writings in Galatians, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And I want us to think about how these apply to our lives, to your life, to my life, to our life together as a congregation, to our life as a church, not just the way we are within these four walls, but the way we are with all of the people who we influence, whether they come in through our building as somebody who hires us for a read-through, for a TV series, through to the people who hire the building for the dance company all of those people who use this place and come through these doors how is the kingdom of god bearing fruit in their lives is i think part of our mission as a church we need to be consistently asking ourselves whether the things we invest our time and energy and money in are going to be fruitful or not And that fruitfulness is measured in the end not primarily by numbers, but by love, and by joy, and by peace, and by patience, and by kindness, and by generosity, and by faithfulness, and by gentleness, and by self-control. If these are the fruit that we bear, then the kingdom of God is growing in our midst, and we can rejoice in a job well done. So, friends, some thoughts at the beginning of a new year as we journey together into whatever God's future will be for us.
2: Let's bow our heads in prayer. God of the past, the present, in the future, we come to you today, conscious that as the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We look around the world in despair. Leaders of countries seem so often consumed by hatred, greed, or a desire to cling to power. We watch daily the unfolding situation in the Middle East, involving two major world religions, and we wonder whether caring for humanity has been lost. The ongoing situation in the Ukraine, in civil wars in so many other countries, deeply concern us. Lord, we pray for justice, tolerance, and understanding amongst races, religions and political parties. We pray for humanitarian agencies who continue to provide aid in very difficult circumstances. We pray for the children who do not understand why they have lost homes, family members, and the normal infrastructure that gave their society stability. We live in a beautiful world but a world marred by pollution of air, land and sea. Lord, we pray that the inhabitants of this amazing planet might have a concern and an understanding of the need to protect the environment and a willingness to make changes to do this. Lord, we pray for our church here at Bloomsbury. We ask for your wisdom and guidance as we meet for our AGM. And we give thanks for those who devote time, effort and energy to the church. We pray for those who are enduring deeply stressful times as they watch with a sense of helplessness over an ill loved one. Lord, guide our community to do what we can for those around us. We are grateful that we have facilities to welcome the cold-weather shelter here and trust that it might prove a useful time for the clients who attend. Help us to remember the values, vision, and beliefs that underpin our church. And remember that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Help us, Lord, to welcome the stranger, to reach out to those in need, and to care for and support one another. Amen.
0: Lord, as we go out into the world dedicated to your service, we ask for your blessing. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us
2: and give us peace. Amen.